You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Banana. Aristotle was not Belgian. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. Hey everyone and welcome to a new episode of Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. It's so nice to see you. Uh, we're back after taking a week off and handling some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, and today we've got a great episode for you. Mark Ellis, you may know him from his stand-up comedy for being one half of Schmo's No or his work on Collider Video. Uh, Mark Ellis and I are going to be getting into it. We're talking about Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, we're talking about the late, great Robin Williams. And... Um, you know, this is a really, this was an episode that sort of kicked off a couple of episodes to come. Um, lots of war movies being picked by my guests. <laughs> and um, it's it's really created for me a newfound appreciation, not only for the subgenre, but for the actual moments in history that, um, that a lot of these films are depicting. And Good Morning Vietnam, I don't know how well it's aged, but, um, but there's a lot of really, really, really great stuff in there. And I'm really glad that Mark picked it. And of course, in addition to discussing the career of the late, great, wonderful Robin Williams, um, we're talking about you know, comedy, of course, because it's Mark Ellis. And we're talking about entertainment and politics. And we're talking about lots of big picture stuff. So I think you guys are going to really like this episode. Um, and without further ado, here is Mark Ellis talking about Good Morning Vietnam. <laughs> some people record on their iPhones mm -hmm. just just as like backup just in case um, and I started doing that oh, and then yeah. my my iPhone stopped recording so it's just really? so it's like cursed do you want me to record on mine just to, no. okay I think we should be good and we've got I got new batteries in there I got a new card I did all <laughs> my I checked everything our air is pure our air is pure and somewhat cool <laughs> except kind of hot um, okay voice memos. The other thing that's really funny is that I just don't know how anything works. So <laughs> it's rather comical that I am running this operation because it is a joke. Are you enjoying it though? I mean, is it, yes. is it more like you, it's not stressful yet. It's still just like, it's yeah. fun. Yeah. It's still fun. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the, the stressful part is the technology part, not only this part, but the website and right, right. and running all of that and, and changing the, I'm going to have to migrate my RSS feed, which is complicated. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, this is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how any of that stuff works. No. Nope. The, the RSS feed or me like neither. who actually owns it. <laughs> yep. Me neither. I don't know. Like I, some podcasts that I listen to, I see that they have something in there that says like licensed with creative commons. And I'm like, should I? copyright what yeah, I'm doing. Do I? I don't know. Yeah. But you know what? If somebody steals my podcast, then 
You just the more sending the wolves to get up there, the less easy it is for somebody because it's, it's a cool name. It, thank you. And there's a lot of people named Wolf that would love to be podcasting. There, so. you know, sending the wolf is not available on Twitter because a law firm uh, that has only tweeted oh, once boy. and, as far as I can tell, is no longer in existence, yeah. took the name. Yeah. And um, so I was very disappointed. There's a Mark Ellis in in the United Kingdom that tweeted like in 2014. Yeah. But did take the time to write me back and say, no, I think I'll keep it. I was like, all right. <laughs> That's the thing is that I, I messaged Sending the Wolf Law Firm uh, and they did not respond, which also leads me to believe that they do not exist anywhere. <laughs> but it's it's funny, too, because my dad, who is an attorney, also wanted to do something with Sending the Wolf at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah. Um, mostly because he thought it was cool. And I yeah. was like, yeah, but and he never did. You don't want the wolf on. It no. sounds like a billboard. Well, also because my dad is a criminal defense attorney. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're sending a, the wolf as in the Pulp Fiction wolf, it's like mm-hmm. it's a fixer anyway. Yeah. And so yeah. it's kind of, you know. But I like that. Just missed it. Just <laughs> missed it for me. You're living out his dream. I am uh, on a podcast. <laughs> if only they, you know, it's so funny too. It's like we did a podcast, uh, the Bloodcast, a couple of years right, ago. Right. You came on when I was mm-hmm. doing that with Ryan Turek. My, I've been on so many podcasts, like the Bloodcast, and I, I hosted and produced the official podcast for the show Sleepy Hollow. And oh, wow. yeah, like I was working with Fox and and Ko and all of them, and um, and now I have this. My parents do not understand. Oh, where can I watch it? And I'm like, still, still no. Yeah, I still have this like weird hurdle with my mom where I I just I have to reiterate to her very gently, like, you know, you can watch your son on the TV like every day of the week if you want to. And she's like, oh, yeah, I think I saw something like that. I'm like, but you can I'm there every day. This is what I do. This is my thing. And like, here I am. It was so funny when I um, oh, you were just on Doug Loves Movies again. I was. Yeah. I need to listen. Yeah. I need That's to listen fun. to your episode. Um, but uh, there was a period. I, I told Doug last time I was on the show that the weekend he was doing an Atlanta show, I was going to be in Atlanta. And so oh, cool. I was like, so if you need, a, if you are looking for guests, like I'll be there. And um, I think he did some Walking Dead thing or something. Mm-hmm. But um, either way, I I went home and I told my parents. You know, and I was like, there's a chance that I might do this show on Sunday afternoon. Um, it's right down the street from their house and all that stuff because they live in the city. And my mom was like, oh, and I was like, it's a pretty big podcast. Like, it's it's pretty big. De- like, you know, lots of people listen to it. And my mom was like, oh, OK, well, your dad likes to golf on Sunday. So we're going to do that. Um, but, uh, but go ahead and do whatever you want. It's your little podcast. And, and I was just like. I uh, and that's what my mom does. My mom blames my dad for. It's like, it's like, your dad likes to do this, and right, it's like right. dad does not Don't care. Don't disturb, yeah, Mister Wolf. It was it's such nonsense. It was <laughs> such nonsense. I was like, no, dad probably would be like, oh, let's go watch Clark do something. Yeah, but, but the, I think the name podcast has that. Like some people hear podcast, they're like, oh, another podcast, and other people hear it and they're like, oh, it's a little show you do into a shoebox in your bedroom. Exactly. Which, which is really the just, goal. This is what we're doing yeah. right now. Yeah. I've been recording for like five minutes and none of it. Like, like it, when I say recording, I mean, this is just for me. There's no. <laughs> <laughs> this is just the playback. I'm like, recording into my shoebox, as yeah. you say. Well, I, I, I hope this banter survives on like some sort of podcast extra. Oh, no. Somewhere. It's, this is how I roll. I stole Mark Marin's shtick. I just, I like to just hit record. We've been on the whole time. The whole time. Oh, man. Everybody, because they're looking for a grand intro, mm-hmm. but you're not, you're not like that. No, I mean I yeah, but that's that's how I'm conditioned is like a huge like when you see a band, 
you know, go up, they they don't open with like, hey, we're just going to noodle around for about 20 <laughs> minutes. They just open with like a hit song. Yes. So this is fun. I like I, I like this kind of intro. Good. It's, it's like it's like when you go into the uh, the water in the ocean. Yes. And it's like you just let it. You just let, let the, you're like, oh, this is going to be really cold. This is going to be really cold. Then at some point you just suck it up and you dive right yeah. in. Yeah. Or a wave hits you yeah. and you have no choice. Or your older sister splashes Yeah, you. exactly. Like, it's worse this way Why? than it is just jumping in. The worst. My older sisters. What bullies? I'm, I'm an older <laughs> sister, so. Um, I have some thoughts about you, <laughs> we're, we're controversial. <laughs> we're a controversial bunch. So I have with me in my kitchen, Mark Ellis. Hello. Hello. Um, and uh, I'm so glad that you are doing this with me because I've wanted to have you on for a long, long time. Yeah, this is, uh, I when I heard the concept, I was like, this is perfect for you. Like, it's always nice when somebody finds their custom fit angle on a podcast, you know? Thank and you. this is great. I mean, you, you're a lover of cinema, but you celebrate... The, the great one. You know what a great movie is when, when you see it. I don't always. You do. I'm looking at the AFI list and I'm like, there's no Ninja Turtles on here <laughs> anywhere. What the hell am I going to talk about? There's no Wire Wire. There's no Nutty Professor. Not the remake. They're the original Jerry Lewis yes. version. So I was thinking, okay, could I cheat and say, okay, uh, we'll talk about Jerry Lewis, but can we also talk about Eddie Murphy for the majority of the show? And I don't want to do that. It's so it's actually very funny you say that because I'm under the impression that our mutual friend Danny Fernandez did the exact same thing um, <laughs> when she picked Beetlejuice because I really think mostly she wanted to talk about a Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh yeah, <laughs> she you, is a monster. Yes, fan of that. And if you listen to the episode, like she, I think she just wanted to talk about a Nightmare Before yeah, Christmas. She took one of my favorite movies, Beetlejuice. <laughs> Juice. I will say this though, she she took me to see uh, the Danny Elfman uh-huh. live at the Hollywood Bowl Nightmare Before Christmas, yes. and I'd never seen Nightmare Before Christmas before oh, at wow. all. It's a really cool first way to see that movie, like to see just how because I, I know it's in the lexicon and yes. people grew up with it. I didn't for whatever reason, yep. but seeing how people celebrate that movie, watching Danny Elfman, yeah. Catherine O'Hara, Paul Rubens, Greg Proofs came out, like all the original voice actors. It was awesome. Yeah, I think that I, I would I would love to have that experience. I've seen Danny Elfman perform at Christmas or at Halloween time mm-hmm. um, and do the hits of, of everything, essentially. Yeah, some Oingo Boingo yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and of course, there's an orchestra that plays his most famous scores. Um, and then he comes out at the end and sings some of the songs and whatever. But uh, I've never seen The Nightmare Before Christmas live. And I'd really like to because I do not like Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> I love the music, but I don't, I've never liked the movie. It's cool. I mean, I just just had never heard of anything like that where you're melding because in your head when you're a kid like you just think okay Halloween is this thing and then we get into the holiday season yes. that's something that's totally different from Halloween and to see all those worlds collide yeah. almost like a competition yes it's, it's kind of cool it's super clever and um and I love I do love the music so I feel like seeing it live would be energizing and just fun yeah no I mean, I'd rather what. see Beetlejuice live but in lieu of that, we'll we do the Christmas one. Beetlejuice is rocking New Year's Eve. Don't they do that at Universal Studios? <laughs> oh, yeah. it's it, Because it says Beetlejuice, and so I got a picture of him, and it says live in concert. Then the live is crossed out, and it says dead in concert. Yes. So. See? It, that's comedy. Good stuff. That's comedy. That's That takes effort. Playing Beetlejuice... Like, I have a buddy who used to play Wolverine oh. at Universal, and, and you can get in a costume, and you can walk around. If you're playing Beetlejuice, that is, like, 
three hours in a makeup chair yeah. on and off like every day. That is that's not easy. Yeah, you're not sticking a, a plastic mask on and being like, I'm here. And it's also not like, hey, I, I got to get off work 30 minutes early because I got to go to this audition or I got a party. Like, it's right. a commitment. Yeah, you're committed for sure. Um, well, speaking of comedy. Um, so I, I really love that you picked this movie, that you picked Good Morning Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never seen this one. And we were just talking about that. And I had never seen it. And um, there's a lot of Robin Williams movies that are, you know, uh, that are not the kids' movies that he did for the 90s and the 2000s that I have never seen. Like, I've never seen World According to Garp. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I've actually never even seen... Oh, he's not... Is he, he's in Dead Poets Society. He is. Yeah, he, I've never seen that. that was, I believe that was his second Academy Award nomination, Good Morning Vietnam, I believe, being his first. Mm-hmm. And The World According to Garp was... It was one of his first forays into... Like, just a dramatic role after people really had established him as, this is Mork. Right. You know? And then he, he did Popeye, and that didn't work out. But they're like, they knew him as this, obviously, stand-up genius. And then he came onto the scene. Robin Williams is one of those guys that came onto the scene in such a explosive fashion when he hit. Because Mork and Mindy was a monstrous yeah. show. And, I mean, he was trained at Juilliard, so he knew how to do dramatic and comedy mm-hmm. and all that stuff. He worked on stand-up a lot in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then when he came down to the comedy store and Mitzi Shore saw him for the first time, she immediately, the story is she saw him on stage at the Hollywood one. Mm-hmm. And immediately when he got off stage, she drove him to the Westwood Comedy Store. Oh. And it's like, you need to go up here, too, because the Westwood Comedy Store, which is no longer there, it back in the day, it was more like the the raw, unta- like, like we're going to get a little rowdy kind of thing. Uh-huh. So you can imagine a mind like Robin Williams really taking that crowd to the next level. And he, was, he wasn't a guy that really needed to develop by that time as far as like, oh, he needs to learn how to do stand-up. He was already a veritable force mm-hmm. when he got out here. That's why he got Mork and Mindy so quick. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, um, which... I think in the wrong hands, or if I just tried to explain it to somebody, would sound really like, oh, boo-hoo, I feel so sad for you. But it's the scene where he's so upset with the way everything is going and Forrest Whitaker comes to get him out and he's like come on come on like you have to you're, you're back you're, and he's like he's like fuck it I don't want to do this like mm-hmm. I'm done yeah. and uh and he get they get stopped or stuck in traffic and all the servicemen are there and Forrest Whitaker is like hey guys guess who I have here and he's sitting there going do not do this do not do this and then of course it's like okay I gotta be on and I love that scene yeah. so much because I think it really exemplifies what comedians are capable of doing and why storytelling is important in the first place. Yeah, and Barry Levinson, you're right. In Less Capable Hands, that scene comes off as overly sappy or... Especially when you're looking at these guys, because this movie is made a decade, two decades later, Mm -hmm. who you know are going off to be slaughtered in those jungles. And so it's like, oh, poor comedian, you don't want to make people laugh. Yeah. Um, And these kids are about to go die, but... In his hands. And Adrian Cronauer knows that, too. Yes. I mean, he yes. is so, some of the things that, that really makes comics want to make people laugh is that we know that the rest of life yeah. is difficult. But whatever it is, your job or your, your, your spouse or your kids, or you're in a war, you right. know? And so in a very less kind of heavy way, because I've been to the overseas to do shows like for the troops, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's never anything that harrowing where you know that somebody's departing and they might not come back, but the time in Vietnam, I mean, the statistics don't lie. So he knew that too. 
And to see somebody turn on and give these guys something, give whatever his talent was. I think that's that's the really cool thing about that movie is that you see somebody who is so giving of their talent because even if he doesn't feel like doing it, he knows what it's going to do for these guys. Like they, they're literally going into the scariest situation you could possibly force it into. So I'm going to make these guys laugh and I'm going to do it well. Yeah. You know, he's not he's not just juggling or like on a tries. Like right. he's really saying funny stuff. He's doing crowd work. He's appealing to them. He's making them feel like human beings because so much of what happened in Vietnam to our soldiers made them feel like anything but right. a human being. They, they felt like commodities and this guy made them feel like an individual again for a little bit. Yeah, he has that line at the end and he says, I won't forget you. Yes. Oh, that's that's when the tears start <laughs> coming from. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. and you know, honestly, having, having just watched this for the first time yesterday, um, that scene in particular was really sad because of the Robin Williams of it all. Right. I mean, the idea that that you can look at this scene for the literal interpretation, or you can look at this person who was flawed and troubled, but just wanted to make people smile. Yeah. And, and did it on cue, and then was left, they go away, and he's there, and it's, okay, well, I won't forget you. Right. And it was just like, oh, it was so sad. Quick tangent, do you ever see uh, Night at the Museum 3? No. I have never wept more in a movie theater in my entire life. I mean, it was open, like, I think, pretty sure, like, people were concerned for me, because... It was one of Robin Williams' last screen performances, yeah. and, it, and it came out after he died. Yeah. And I don't know if if Sean Levy had the scene and he's like wasn't going to put it in or whatever it was, but it seems very uh, sadly prophetic because he's saying goodbye to I think uh, Ben Stiller's character uh-huh. as Teddy Roosevelt, you know, and he's and he's up on his horse and he's looking down and and he's just giving this speech about how like we'll all see each other again sometime or like mm-hmm. we we don't know what it is, but it was almost like he's saying goodbye, yeah, like like he knew this and so he's telling the audience like hey it, it's been real and like it was just the floodgates were uh, open, yeah, it was so moving. And but that's what he brought to a role like that, where like when I was a kid and I first saw Good Morning Vietnam, I'm like, yeah, he's really funny because that's Robin Williams pretty much doing stand up in the air. And then you have all these serious elements going on with Vietnam, because the other real tug on the heartstrings moment that feels very organic is the Louis Armstrong uh, when they're showing the carnage. Of Vietnam, yeah. Because you're because that movie tricks you. You're yeah. having such a good time with this guy. Hey, man, we're just on vacation. You yeah. know, we got we're gonna go hit on some some local girls, and yeah. we're gonna go to this bar, and we're gonna do this. And this guy's really funny on the radio. And then you realize the other half. Yeah. What really we're there for, and uh, it's it's horrifying. Yeah, that scene was I very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And uh, but you know, I think that I think that. You know, this movie is a really interesting movie. It's a really, um, it feels unique. It feels like, you know how sometimes you go back and you watch movies from the 70s or the 80s and you're just like, wow, this is a movie that is just its own little mm-hmm. t- little thing and that is so and, and it's it's like I, Tootsie feels that way to me. <laughs> I don't I know that's really silly, but I lo- I that mo- I love that movie. Um and I still think it's hilarious. Does it feel like a time capsule movie to you to maybe? To me or? it feels yeah, it just feels like this is such a movie of the time and yet it is a quality it's still a quality movie and yet you just go 
this would never happen now. This would not, you know what I mean? Mrs. Doubtfire is becoming that movie too. Really? You yeah. think so? Yeah. It's not just movies limited to guys dressing up like females, <laughs> but it's part of it. I mean, it's just things that, that you know from a movie perspective would not have been greenlit or they would have yeah. had to radically change or something like that. But yeah, Tootsie in particular, uh, Bill Murray, I like every time I watch that movie, I forget that Bill Murray's his roommate. And then I'm like, this is, this is my favorite part of the movie. I know. He's so good. He's so good. But I do think that, you know, this movie comes out in 1987, so there's definitely a little space in between the actual Vietnam War mm -hmm. and this movie coming out. Um, and Barry Levinson has a really good track record at this point. And I was reading that Robin Williams, you know, for the for a little more context, hadn't, as you were saying earlier, like tried Popeye, didn't quite work. Like movie movie star wise, wasn't quite happening. But this was the one that finally clicked. Yeah, he, uh, I think he just locked into what he was able to do. And Barry Levinson, coming from a comedic and even a stand-up background, yeah. I think that really helped. Like, he could, he kind of found a kindred spirit that they could work with together. And the surrounding cast really helps this movie, too, because it, it is Robin Williams' show. Yes. But everybody else in there fleshes out these roles that could have just been very two-dimensional. Right. I mean, one of my favorite performances in the movie is Bruno Kirby Bruno because great. he could have just been this antagonistic ass, and he is, but there's more to him than that. You see like a little tinge of, of jealousy of this guy who's always wanted to impress people with his sense of humor. And it just, it's a, and then it just like, as a guy, it just like, it, it, it makes you be like, Oh, we've had this conversation with people. We should get together and swap humorous stories. It was like, such, it was such a <laughs> comedy. Like if this movie was going to criticize the Vietnam war or mm -hmm. some of the elements of the Vietnam war, it also felt like a bit of, of a referendum on like on comedy as well yeah the, you know they the, and it was just like wow this is a weird this is a weird chocolate and peanut butter situation but but you're right like some of those lines that bruno kirby says uh it's like well just some of what they were saying of like sir you are not funny yeah. <laughs> just like this those dialogue scenes it's just so good and yet so cringy he's that guy who who thinks that you just you work hard to be funny which is true to a point yes. but this movie is really good at showing you what natural comedic talent is and i remember watching this movie as far back as i can remember through now where it's he wakes up because he is his wake-up call is like 5 a.m or something mm -hmm. like that to be on the air and i just always remember thinking how could this guy do that how could he wake up not be nervous mm -hmm. about being on the radio he's just dead asleep gets up doesn't even grab coffee or a chair or anything and he gets into the studio, then the light goes on, and good morning. For him to be able to do that, you're like, how do you do that? And then you start to realize that you, at some point, you either have it or you don't, and that preparation is a part of it. Yeah. But it's also just being able to turn on when you need to do it, which is why I, I think about that scene a lot when I fly to a town that I'm working in that weekend. and Because the best part of the first day is the nap. Like, oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. great at sleeping on planes. So you take a red eye, you get into the hotel, and you get that nap for like three or four hours in the middle of the afternoon before the first show that night. That's pretty much what you do is you sleep, mm -hmm. you get rested. You, you're not nervous. You're just, you need the sleep. And then you wake up and, okay, let's mm -hmm. go do the show. Yeah. It, Same thing he did. Yeah. He just, yeah. I mean, it's, um, but I also, and I also really like how, you know, as he got immersed in the world that he was living in, you know, there is that struggle and there was that struggle to tell the truth. 
I think that's a comedian. I think that's in a lot of ways a comedian struggle. How much truth is the audience? okay with right you can't help it yeah I mean well and that's what isn't that what makes something funny Mm -hmm. is the idea that you recognize the truth in it and and for you know it can we can get real dark with that you can recognize the truth in some really fucked up shit yeah or you can recognize the truth in you know slipping on a banana peel is funny yeah and so (laughs) when you see all these news stories coming in and you know it's BS or you know that okay okay the the government doesn't want me to report on this to these guys because of X Y and Z reason it's like, no, I have to be true to myself and I have to, now that I've had personal experiences with these guys and, and the fact that I am the voice, yeah. who am I going to be? Am I going to be the man or am I going to be the independent spirit that I got to this country as and that's what I'm going to do? And, and you know, again, it's, it's not, not advisable for a long career in being a military broadcaster, but right. he did it his way. Yeah. And also, you know, it was a, the, the, portion of that that really stood out the most to me was was surviving the bomb uh, him surviving the bomb at, at Jimmy's bar and and wanting to go in and talk about it and them saying you can't talk about it and he's like well I was fucking there like yeah. you can't tell me that I, you can't take that away from me you can't take away the fact that I experienced this and it's another thing that happens in the movie where it's another gut punch like like the Louis Armstrong scene yes. where it we're having a good time again and the movie really takes you on that it's kind of like the sine cosine curve, you know, yeah. where, where you're really up and you're having a good time. Then all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, things can change because you are at war. This guy's job sometimes is to make you forget that you're at war and it feels great. But then he also has that struggle that I am reporting on a war and I need to let people know what's actually happening. Yeah, it's you know, it's funny because have you seen um, have you did, have you watched this movie recently? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I think a couple weeks ago. I, I watch it every so often, just catch bits and pieces. But I saw the whole thing a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's um, Rufus is having dreams over there. <laughs> if you can hear him, he's he's not barking at anything. He's... It's the cutest thing when they start like. <laughs> Rufus. It's like a half. It's like a half bark. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can fight him. I can take him. Um, <laughs> and but, the kick they do. Yeah, they oh do yeah, a little, little, kick. The little yeah. Um, yeah, Rufus. Rufus thinks he's a guard dog. He <laughs> thinks he's a big tough man um, instead of a fancy gentleman. <laughs> but um, I. So okay, you've seen the movie recently. I, you know. Coming to this, uh, however many years later, I, you can only hold it accountable for as much as it is, or you can't, you know, I mean, it was a different time. It is a different time. But um, I did, I did, so at first when he started pursuing that girl, mm-hmm. I was kind of like, um, this is weird. But I will say that ultimately what she was able to communicate and what she was able to say, like, you know, we're, we're not friends Viet- in Vietnam Vietnam ladies can't be friends. That's something you need to know. And also when she said, my country may not have a future, it was like, it was a really, I understand that, that for these purposes, it was sort of woven in through a kind of romantic story or subplot, but, but I liked how they gave her a voice in that way. Yeah. And she's, it's a really interesting role because when you, when we meet her, she's, kind of acting like anybody would if their country was immersed in a war where it could actually affect you like on that block at that time when she's just she's going about her business and she wants to kind of turn a blind eye to the fact that all these GIs are around everywhere and whether they're pursuing her or not it's like I want to do my usual day to day and I and I would like to be out of this war cloud as often as possible but then also when we find out you know that that her brother Mm -hmm. might be 
working for the other side and what that does to Adrian Cronauer because he's like, oh yeah, these, this is not a war necessarily between good guys and bad guys. Yeah. This is just, we're all people and it's a different ideology. But now that I know you as a human being, it's a lot harder for me to step back yeah. and say, well, you're my enemy. Yeah, well, I, I that scene towards the end where you know he, Adrian does find, it's Quan, right? Tuan. Mm-hmm. Quan, yeah. Quan. Yeah. Yeah. So um when he finds him and confronts him and is like, you know, what the fuck? I thought we were friends. And mm-hmm. he's like, what the fuck do you mean you thought we were? You, you guys killed. Let me list off all these people that I no longer have in my life because of this war. And that, you know, that's also another really important part that needed to be said. And I'm, I'm glad that it was said. Yeah, it was something that, I mean, because a lot of Vietnam movies were starting to be made around that time, like yeah. Platoon and Casualties of War and things like that, and they all paint that picture, and I'm glad that Good Morning Vietnam was able to do that, too, that it's just another reminder that that, that no war, really, when you actually break it down, is is just good people versus bad right. people. You know, it's, it's never that simple. Now, you can look at the ideology of World War II, and you can be very confident that you know, our side that we were in the right, that, that the allied, that's yeah. what, that, that's the, the cause for justice. And, and we're Captain America and we're, we're the good people here. And then Vietnam, it's, it becomes a lot more cloudy. And, and this movie did a good job of showing us that and showing us how people exist and have relationships within that cloud when they didn't know that was part of the deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know I was going to have to meet somebody on the other side yeah. and then deal with them and actually be friends with them. Right. I didn't know that, that 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 hand could be dealt to me in this situation. Yeah. It's um I also noticed that the the direction his Levinson's direction um of the signage all the I don't know if you've ever noticed this but like I mean it's it's this the first sign that you see is follow me uh, and that's at the airport. You know, it's like the f- the first thing when the plane lands and it's just the camera, follow me. And then the next thing is, you know, like I, literally a minute later, it's a close-up of the stop sign. <laughs> and like there's so many. And then, you know, throughout the whole movie, there's the written um, telegrams or whatever that are coming through. And you have to, there are verbal cues or visual messages throughout this whole movie that I was just like, man. It's that's, order. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this is what this is what you're told to do. Do what you're told to do. You know, when we say jump, you say how high. And to somebody like Adrian Cronauer, who's just his brain doesn't work like that. And that's why one of the reasons why he was such a sensation, because, oh, this guy is he's our he's our punk rock before punk rock ever existed. He's he's different. He's playing young people music. He's rebelling against all these different things. And in a war where the government tells you what to do and your sergeant your boss tells you what to do every waking moment it's different and it's radical oh yeah and 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 um i know you mentioned it a little earlier but the the supporting cast of this movie the you know robert wool is so good and silly and Forrest Whitaker is great Mm -hmm. and funny it's it's really cool to see uh especially Forrest Whitaker because I feel like if you know him now you know him as serious actor Forrest Whitaker um which he is a serious actor but he's also you know like he's he's funny in this yeah it it would it would have been cool to see Adrian Cronauer cameo in Rogue One you know like (laughs) 
he's he, there's the, oh the Re- rebel radio it's a desperate hour but yes. we're gonna have some yucks uh jt walsh is also great in the movie as like because it's cool how you see just even around the office you see people who are still really buying into this yes. is, we need to protect our soldiers from information we need to do this and this and maybe they had some good intentions doing that you know because they didn't want all this information to get out or they didn't want to break the rules they didn't want to go outside the lines and then you have people like robin williams was leading that charge, but Robert Wool thought it was funny, and yeah. Forrest Whitaker thought it was funny. So they're kind of caught in the middle a little bit. They need that. You gotta have your hype man. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah. You gotta have your your support, your audience. And right from the when Forrest Whitaker just picks him up from the airport, and everybody gets off, and their their clothes are so clean, and then here comes Robin Williams. Everything's untucked, and it's just it's a it's a different character you're getting into. And you know, again, like like the whole movie stands out to me. As a great comedy drama. Yeah. That's really what I consider. And I honestly, I don't know how it was marketed at the time it came out, if it was sold as that, or it's like, hey, come see Funny Man Robin Williams in a movie where we're also going to tell you some serious stuff. Mm -hmm. Because Barry Levinson is a great comedic mind, too. Yeah. But the first thing that I always remember about Good Morning Vietnam is how special he was when he got on the radio. Yeah. How transcendental that it's like, give any other actor those lines and you're not really giving it. Robin Williams is coming up with a lot of this stuff. Of course. I mean, it's just, it's amazing what he does. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. What it's he humbling does. Clark. It is. I we should all, how do I, how do I go on stage tonight? They're uh, talking about the greatest, one of the best to ever do it. Uh, these are, these are your concerns, my friend. There's certain people you do watch and, and, and you just have to get it out of your head that you're playing the same sport as them. Yes. Because they're just, they're so good at what they do. And, what you learn in stand-up is like what you were talking about earlier is that I need to learn how to be myself. Yes. I need to embrace being myself. I can't go up and be a pale imitation of Robin Williams or Dave Chappelle or somebody like that. I have to go up and be me. Yeah. So, but you know, me is probably not as good. Well, <laughs> Robin I mean, live at the Met. It's so it's <laughs> yeah yeah you that's I often have to remind myself that uh, you know especially this is going to sound so bougie but especially when I'm playing golf mm-hmm. I'm like you know what this is a contest against myself <laughs> this is not no one's looking at you everybody is thinking about their swing their ball yeah. their you know all of it but it's like I, I always have to remind myself you know you're playing against yourself you're not playing against anyone yeah else. I can do that to myself and then you show up on the first tee and there's like other people around there and yeah. people in the clubhouse watching and there's people like the force in behind you is waiting for you to tee off and it's like oh god I'm playing for everybody and there or if you're if you get paired up with a stranger yeah. like especially for me because I'm a woman like people already are like oh I don't want to <laughs> I don't I don't want to play with a woman today. yeah like oh, she's oh so gotta stop at the ladies tees. yeah exactly oh. um but uh but yes you're right Right. And it's, you know, we all, Robin Williams is so special because he really did do it his way and was successful and was recognized for it. And mm-hmm. so I think that's also part of it is you want to believe that you could be, do it your way and be as revered or as successful. And just have that effect on people. Yeah, exactly. That's why I love that scene when he's doing some crowd work for the guys before they go off yeah. to war is that he has such a positive effect on people. Then yeah. that's what that's the goal of any comedian. Yeah. You can have other desires and you can you can want to be controversial or talk about politics yeah. or or I have goals of my set, but at the end of the day, the reason why you're making a living doing it is because you're making people think and 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 look at life in a new way, but you're making them laugh. You're you're making them have a good time. So, to see somebody who is so brilliant at doing it 
And in this, I think this is still probably my favorite Robin Williams role mm. because it does show all the sides of it. But I would put the comedy in here up against any other comedic role yeah. we had. The, the, maybe Aladdin's way up there. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then something like Goodwill Hunting, where he's he's got a couple of nice jabs in there, but he's not being overtly comedic. Right. He's being very serious. Right. So I, as much as I appreciate that, I do want to laugh yeah. as well. So this movie, it has it all, and, and it's because of that guy. Well, you just touched on something that I wanted to specifically ask you about because we see it a lot now. Um, we're seeing it a lot. Uh, Hollywood and, you know, stay out of my... Um, keep your politics out of my entertainment, mm -hmm. out of my music, yeah, out of yeah. my movies. Right. And, you know, you just you look back until the beginning of time. And as long as there have been stories, people have been talking about the people in power mm -hmm. or the systematic um, things that are in power. And, um, you know, and I think that it probably... I don't know because this was this movie was sort of before my or right around when I was born. Um, but I would imagine that there is risk involved touching on this and making a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, especially when you you look at movies that were made about historical events, if it's like World War II or if it's the Revolutionary War or medieval time, it's so long ago, mm -hmm. and this was pretty recent. Yeah, and so. Well, what are we getting into here? Are we, are we going to make some statement that's going to get pushback? And I think that just the way that everything played out where people like had acknowledged that, that Vietnam was a different war and mm -hmm. that by the time this movie was being made, people had that decade perspective to be able to look back and say, yeah, we really there were a lot of mistakes in that war. And I think part of the reason why it was so accepted so quickly after the war is because of the reporting that went on as far back as the early 70s. I mean, you see a movie like The Post and you realize that once this started getting out to the public, then there, 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 there was already a lot of conflict yeah. about whether we should be in Vietnam or we shouldn't. That goes back to the 60s. But seeing how divisive it, of a war it was at the time, I think allows you as an artist to be more free with your opinion of it in, you know, 10, 15 years after the fact. Yeah. And I think too, it's, um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I wonder, uh, I, it, it does help when, when you do, when there is such a comedic angle yeah, in there too. Absolutely. Because you could put somebody who, who has no idea that this movie might be a message against how they felt about yes, Vietnam, but yes. they're in there and they're laughing as well. That's true. And it, and that's and at the end of the day, I guess that is the great disarm it disarms it disarms defenses. Mm -hmm. Comedy is the first thing to uh, or or a very um sure surefire way to disarm someone's defenses. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, we yeah. can laugh at we, we can laugh at ourselves, and and, and look, look, you'll be watching a stand up comic, and if they do an hour, they're probably going to say stuff that you disagree with, right? But the question is, can they make you laugh? Yes. talking about it, and this movie succeeds in that, but it also after the movie, you're thinking about it, yeah. and you might be thinking about it in a slightly different context than what you had going in. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. It's um I make a lot of great points. You're very like, intelligent. A lot of the time. Super intelligent. It's dead on. <laughs> but I I was you know I I just um I think about I think about the idea of um people in entertainment and and them not being encouraged to voice their opinions. And it's weird that it's still going on and it's still so prevalent 
in a day and age where we, we had so many movies that, that took a cue from Good Morning Vietnam. And that took cues from other right. these movies that were making statements. And <clears throat> again, maybe people didn't flock to the movie to see that, but they got it. Yeah. And you don't have the same movie without that. Right. I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, Good Morning Vietnam is not as good of a movie if it's just Adrian Cronauer doing a funny broadcast for 90 minutes. Right. There needs to be context there needs to be subtext and there needs to be an informed opinion if you're an artist and you do not have an opinion Mm -hmm. on the story you're telling it there's no story there yeah I think that's true that's really true well and I also think too you know it's 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 a weird thing um to to say that um people who work in a certain industry aren't allowed to talk about life Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it's because isn't that what entertainers do is talk about life? Like it is, I, I guess when you think about it, it's kind of a very big contradiction. It's very confusing. And if you just, just for a very like big picture sense, if you are an actor or a writer or a musician or whatever, and a comedian, like your job is to recreate or reenact life and talk about life. And so to say uh, how you feel about your life and then be told, no, 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 no one wants to hear that from you. It's like, but that's what you guys pay me for. Because people go to the movies and everything about the process of actually going to the movie, and that's just a metaphorical term, like even if you're just turning on your TV, you're going to a different place that isn't your life anymore. Right. Now you're going into this this dark theater and you have your popcorn, you have your soda, and you're sitting down and you're going to be transported. And so I think that that escapist element of it really makes people want to just completely get away Mm -hmm. from their life. And so if you see something that is reflective of your own life, may remind you that that's waiting for you on the the outside. So where you can have a movie as fantastical as Star Wars, and you can watch that from the perspective of, oh, this is so great to be in outer space for a couple hours. But even that, there's a lot of political subtext in that. It was a response to, it was written as a response to Vietnam originally. So there's it's there in everything i think people sometimes just want the pure escapism mm. and they don't want to have to be self-reflective yeah you know but when you realize that when you are self-reflective it can actually improve you as an overall human and help you understand other people better then you start to embrace it i mean you you look at any really young comic most of them are going to be talk about talking about very basic things that don't have a whole lot of substance to mm-hmm. it you know and and i i still do the same thing from time to time mm-hmm. where it's you talk about relationships and you can just talk about how it sucks being single or man my relationship is really hard and that's funny stuff but it's it's i like it to be a conduit into something else something a little deeper mm-hmm. that will show you something about how i feel about relationships in general yeah or having kids or where i came from um and politically it's the hardest one to tackle because the current climate we're in in hollywood people in america see rich people Mm -hmm. on stage and they can feel like they're being preached to. Mm -hmm. And if the message is the same that they believe in, then they might eat it up. And if the message is different, it's be, well, why is this rich person who's playing pretend going to tell me about how to live my life? Or, or, you know, I look at these people because I want to escape my own life. I don't want you telling me what's good and what's bad. I'll make that decision for myself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think that people have earned the right to be on television or like if you win an award, like my thing about the Golden Globes is if you win an award, 
that's your platform yeah. to do whatever you want with it. You yeah. earned that award. Nobody's forcing anybody home to watch TV. Yeah. So you earned it. Now your performance warranted you getting that that platform. If you're presenting, mm-hmm. it's a little different for me. Because mm-hmm. yes, you you've done enough in your career to be a famous presenter and go up there, but the night's not about you necessarily. So maybe just read the prompter yeah. and, and introduce it. But you know, if you won something and you get that award, then I think it's that that is your time. Yeah. You know what's funny about that? I, I was thinking about this the other day and I haven't uh I haven't t- expressed this to anybody yet, so it might sound weird. I don't know. <laughs> um but the idea of um so the Golden Globes is a great example of um with Time's Up mm-hmm. and wearing black and we're going to take this, you know, collectively take this opportunity at this award show to um, invite our guests are going to be activists and leaders and we are going to um, wear a certain color to to symbolize something and we are going to talk about these things. And, you know, it was what amused me was I was thinking to myself, why do people watch award shows? And then I thought to myself, well, it's to look at the women and uh-huh. what they're wearing. Yeah. I mean, truly, it's to, and of course, there's glitz and glamour, but like, you're watching the award show. The thing that stands out to you is not George Clooney's tuxedo, <laughs> which is gonna look like a tuxedo. Yeah. You're there. And so I thought to myself, you know, if these women, in theory, are going to be treated like show ponies, which they are, because here's my pretty dress, here's my pretty hair, mm-hmm. here's my pretty. Uh, stuff. Look at me. Yes, hello. I'm so happy to be here. Um, also, can the show ponies start talking? <laughs> can the show ponies like? And I really thought to myself, you know what? I don't think it's out of line. The specifically speaking about Times Up and and the women of this industry, invite you know, advocating for women all over. I, I I was like, no, I think they've earned that because. You know, you look, want to look at them and tell them to be quiet, but maybe you can look at them and also now they're going to say something. Yeah, and just acknowledge the effort that it took to get there that night. Yeah. I mean, it's because because women are so quickly judged on their appearance, mm-hmm. you know, whereas you're right, like George Clooney, he could roll out of bed in, and in five minutes be ready to go to the awards. But if you're a woman, because of the way society judges you and who wore it better and who's hotter and all these things, it it, it takes hours and hours. So if you're going to put that time of effort, you deserve to wear whatever the <laughs> hell you want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, do whatever you want yeah. with your platform. And that's what I like about award shows because I don't put a lot of stock in the in the actual award. Yeah. I could care less. Me too. Because we're, it's it, it, like... Art's not competitive. Right. We, we make it competitive. Yeah. And I'm as guilty as anybody. You know, I will argue with my friends who's the best comedian of all, who's the best guitar player of all time. Mm-hmm. Art is not competitive. So we're making it competitive and it's kind of a sham. So what is it about the award show that's mm-hmm. important? It's the fact that you do have this huge audience. Mm-hmm. It's the message, which is why I give the Oscars a little bit of leeway if you're rewarding the best quote-unquote movie of the year, where it might not be the best movie of the year, but it might be the most important yeah. film that was made. It might not be the most entertaining to me, but as far as the statements it was making, the message it had to get out, maybe that's what does deserve a statue. Yeah, well, and and to your point about the most important versus the best, that is this whole list 
You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, it's, and, and we did make art very competitive. And, we, and, and it's true, though. I mean, like, it's, hey, but but that's, that. look, these are the parameters. I didn't set them up. This is their, I'm just living mm-hmm. in it. These are your rules, not mine. Hey, we had wolves, we send them, you know? <laughs> they it's need not to our be fault. sent. Yeah. Um, wolves well, need activities. They sh- otherwise, they're going to eat your sheep. That's they true. Need, wolves need tasks. Yes, otherwise, they're going to eat you. Yeah, they, yeah, they'll eat anything, really. That's, that's that's what a wolf is. Wolves are so cool. They are pretty cool. Do you, huh? ever, do you ever just sit back and be like, man, I have a kick-ass last name. Yes. It's awesome. I do. I often think that if I uh, if I ever got married, I, I wouldn't change it. I don't know of a name right? that would be better than wolf. Yeah. Like I would I would take the name Wolf. I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm I'm good with Wolf. Right? That's pretty badass. A yeah. future husband is like, no, you get to be a wolf now. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Like I I don't want this situation to happen to me, but I watched like Liam Neeson in the movie The Grey and and he's like in the woods, then he sees a wolf. And he know he's like that's not the wolf to worry about. That's just a setup wolf. Yeah. There's other wolf. I want to see that happen in real time. Yeah. Now obviously I don't want to get ripped apart. So maybe some sort of bubble contraption I could be in. But I want to see that happen. I want to see one wolf trap me and then see the other ones come where you don't even see. You know, oh, that's good. You stuff. know what you want? You want a VR experience of the gray. Yeah. That's I think what you want. That VR experience. Those things are. They already freak me out. The, the fact that I just said VR experience is we not do a anything VR that I'm proud of. The podcast. <laughs> so corporate. <laughs> um, <laughs> so corporate for a goofy podcast. Uh, okay, so um, uh, in addition to Good Morning Vietnam, mm-hmm. Vietnam, uh, everybody gets the opportunity to pick a movie to add to the list. Oh, boy. That is not on the list. Okay. Now, you already rattled off a handful of them earlier, movies yeah. that are not on uh, the 100 Greatest Laughs. I have a lot of angst and aggression with my list. You do. Against the uh, the 100, what is this, Greatest? Uh, La- is, it, is it Greatest Laughs, laughs is yeah. the name of the list? So it's comedy, I yeah. suppose. Um, yeah. I think for a lot of the same reasons that Good Morning Vietnam is up there for me, and Good Morning Vietnam's number 100 mm-hmm. almost, so it barely I, made yeah, the cut. it really did. So beggars can't be choosers, but I think it should be a lot. Look, you, you, some like it hot's fine, okay? You can't tell me that, that it, it holds up better right now than Good Morning Vietnam, but I do love me some Jack Lemmon. Um, the Nutty Professor, the Eddie Murphy version, because people think about that movie, and a lot of the same way they think about Good Morning Vietnam for the first time, and they just think about this crazy DJ and how funny he is. Mm-hmm. Nutty Professor, people think about Sherman Klump and and all the you know the, the fat jokes mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff in the family and the eating and those scenes still make me fall down laughing. They're so funny, but there's a lot of depth in the character of Sherman Klump. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who was a chubby kid, you see when Dave Chappelle is just laying into him. And the camera slowly zooms in, mm-hmm. and everybody else is left out because, and you see the pain mm-hmm. in this man's. Oh, it's very, very. It's a very personal movie to me. Um, women be shopping. Women be shopping. <laughs> so, and they can wear whatever they want. Um, so, the night professor is in there. I'm trying to think of one that might be a little more. I love uh, that one too. Yeah, I mean, like, just for me personally, if this was my list as yeah. far as the most influential comedies that I've ever seen. Uh, Ace Ventura was a monstrously mm-hmm. influential movie. Liar Liar changed my entire, it literally changed the course of my life, like like, like that. How so? Because I was just kind of sick of being the funny guy mm-hmm. and uh, in school and like being the class clown. And then I was just, I, I don't know, I was just bummed out and went to go see that movie. I remember it was at the Oscars, Jim Carrey came out 
and the movie had opened that weekend. And he came out, and it, the broadcast was on Sunday night, so everybody's clapping, and he just says, and how was your weekend? It was so funny. And that reminded me that he had this movie out and that I loved Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber so much. So I went to go see it, and it was a packed theater, all different types of people, you know, <laughs> men, women, diverse. It was a great audience a great collection of people and everybody was on the floor laughing mm -hmm. and i was like oh yeah this laughter actually is a this is something to pursue so it just kind of reconfigured me a little mm -hmm. bit you know like i was like lieutenant pete mitchell maverick at the end of top gun when he starts thinking about goose and like his mind is just going dark and he has to re-engage that that re-engaged me mm -hmm. and i think that that is when my my modern era mm -hmm. of who i am began and sadly, it stayed that way for 20 years. Sadly? So how dare you? Yeah. So I, I would probably say The Nutty Professor a little over Liar Liar, but um, both of them are very, very important to me. Yeah, I, those two movies, um, I, I remember them when I was a kid. You know, I, I was also a chubby kid. And, really? Uh-huh. And um, so I, that, I remember watching that movie and oh my feeling gosh. things. You know, and, and it's... Eddie Murphy is fascinating. He's he, a monster talent. He he is. He really, really is. Um, and and he. But I I wonder if sometimes he gets into this position. And it's Roca and I talked about this with Jim Carrey too. The idea that when they take a risk or they break outside of their box, mm -hmm. um, that everybody wants to put them in, and you know it either goes pretty well or you know like well, whatever, uh, that they get really, they can't handle it. And they, and they just recoil and are like, okay, I'll go make Norbit. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it's in, like, for instance, with Eddie Murphy and dream girls or, you know, any of the, but he was really, he was really lauded for dream girls as well. He should have been, he was great in mm -hmm. dream girls. Um, and, and same with Jim Carrey and eternal sunshine. And, but both of them, I think didn't get that gold. Yeah. And, and just sort of went, all right, I'm going to go make Popper's Penguins or I'm going to, you know what I mean? And I think, I think the real struggle with that is that you, you step outside your box and you attempt something, regardless of whether in, you know, criticize whatever you're successful or it didn't work out. The real issue that uh, somebody like that has is when they go back to their comfort right. spot, like what we thought Norbit was going to be or what we thought me, myself and Irene was going to uh -huh. be. And it doesn't work out. Yeah. And it's like, oh, now I'm on really shaky ground because I don't know what to do because the comedy isn't churning out the hits like it used to. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I have this dramatic side that, you know, didn't didn't pan out the way I wanted it to maybe the first time out of the gate. But I think both those guys could continue to just do drama for me. I mean, I've gotten all the laughs I need out of them. I think that I would love to see Eddie Murphy be funny again in a comedy, as with Jim Carrey. But if those guys just wanted to go to being dramatic, I know that there's still... I, I, I can still see the sense of humor yeah. in a in a performance. You can still see it being there. Do you feel like they, you can tell when, so for me, um, and Roka and I kind of talked about this a little bit, but I think it's, I would like to ask you as a, com as a comedian, like for me, you can tell, it's kind of like when Britney Spears didn't want to be doing performances anymore. Mm -hmm. You can see it on her face. I'm not I'm not talking about like her personal struggle. I'm talking about she's doing a show and she's like, I'm here and I'm doing it, but like that sparkle it's that made there. her a superstar yeah. um, is gone. And I feel like the sparkle in Jim Carrey's eyes when he's making Liar Liar, 
it wasn't even there. It was fading in Bruce Almighty even. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah, I see what you're saying. What what's comforting to me is that I I just saw Jim Carrey's uh, Comedians in Cars with Seinfeld, yeah. and I saw the sparkle again. Yeah, I saw it in his because he was he was talking about doing stand up, and yeah. it's like if you can transport him back to that time in mm-hmm. his life, he gets very excited to talk yeah. about it. So that was cool to see. Just just knowing it's still there somewhere. Yeah, you know. But yeah, same thing with Eddie Murphy, where he's at the SNL 40th anniversary, and he didn't want to do any sketches, and he just really hasn't wanted to make the effort to be funny for a long time in front of a group of people. Like he's like received awards and stuff, mm-hmm. and he accepts the awards and is very gracious. And but then there is not really there's no jokes. Yeah, and. I think that following yourself sometimes is the hardest thing for a performer to do is knowing that you have, in Eddie Murphy's case, these legendary specials, this uh, the best of all time on Saturday Night mm-hmm. Live, such an incredible comedy career. So now what do I do? Yeah. How do I follow that now? So instead of making the attempt, you just withdraw. Yeah. And I think that that's what is going on with his career as far as making movies now, or at least has been, but... Sometimes you just need a break too. Yeah. So and and maybe that break is a year, maybe that's ten years, but and I always root for people like him to come back. And Eddie Murphy has been a superstar since he was nineteen. Right. Since he was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's it's if if I'm, you know, fifty and I've been uh, on since mm-hmm. I was nineteen, yeah. then yeah, maybe maybe you do get a little tired. Yeah. And I'll do the haunted mansion too. I don't care or whatever whatever the hell he's the working haunted on. Haunted mansion too. Okay. <laughs> before I let you go, I need to ask you one more thing. Um, because it just hit me and I would kick myself. I would be going, doing post on this post-production and I would be like, wow, you had so many opportunities to bring this up and you didn't. Oh boy. Um, Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. So it's really easy for us to, um, look at the great dictator now and cut that little speech at the very end and be like, see how great this is. Um, when knowing full well that he was deported shortly after Mm -hmm. and it wasn't technically because of the great dictator, but he didn't come back from England you know, he he was here, an American, right? Living as an American and living the American dream, and was sent back to England for decades. Yeah, and um, but I think like that it it has been going on for so long, and it has been controversial for so long, and that that push to why can't you just be funny? We want you to be funny. Why can't you just do that? Because he he was this revelation yeah. of a performer. I mean, you put on any of his movies, you know, yes. like, like the gold rush might be my personal mm. favorite of all of them, but he's just, he was a comet and he was really the first comedic comet to, to, to blow up that big, yeah. to set the template for people to follow like, like Jim Carrey or Robin right. Williams. Um, and yeah. And then he, but it's the same thing happened with John Lennon a few decades later where it's like, we just want you to sing your happy songs about falling in love and don't be this political guy or else we'll track you, you mm-hmm. know, or else we'll, we'll do this kind of thing. So it, it is scary when when the powers that be flex their muscle because yeah. they want to keep you in this box because they see with Charlie Chaplin or John Lennon how much power they wield over yeah. the psyche of Americans is that you can make a statement and it resonates. Yeah. You know, I could do a podcast all day long. Nobody cares what I have to say about what may or may not have happened the day JFK was assassinated. Like, like n- nobody cares. But if you have that level of a platform yeah. that Chaplin did, 
I mean, the guy barely talked in movies. Oh, yeah. And you see, it, it's, it's a huge culture shift. Or John Lennon, where he was so fed up with everything that was going on with Vietnam and all corners of the government that he could not find it inside himself to play your twist and shouts anymore. Right. He, he could not do that. He had to get this out of him. And it, the, the government responded. Yeah. It's, and it's scary. It is scary. It's really scary. And it's... Um, you know, I if I I don't think the great dictator is on this list, uh, the the greatest laughs, and it is a maybe it is maybe it is, and I'm wrong. But if only it, I had a device if in my only hand. We could with technology right now, and it is an American-made film. Um, you know what else too? I mean, like you know, look, I am no I am no scholar, but um, the idea that the U.S. was late to enter World War II, mm -hmm. um, and and Charlie Chaplin is going to, in this big Hollywood movie, the first time the tramp is going to ever talk, uh, say, also, a, a Hitler, a fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. that, that the, the fucking balls. I, yeah. you know, Charlie Chaplin, I understand, is a controversial man and, and lived a... Um, lived a life that that would not be cool today you know i've still never seen the movie about the the down, robert oh, Downey jr movie it's so good i was kind of always afraid to watch it because i love watching charlie chaplin as a kid so much downey but. is so if i may just before iron man robert downey jr was my favorite actor alive. oh yeah and um and i i mean i love him in iron man but he's just you know now all he does is iron man which is fine but <laughs> but i just feel like he's also the like people do not understand how good of an actor he is yeah and um and chaplin is also i just love charlie chaplin so that's whatever but downey is i had an ex-boyfriend one time be like clerk you realize charlie chaplin didn't actually look like robert downey jr <laughs> right like that was not he was not handsome like that and i was like shut up he's it's not the point it's funny as handsome right yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah funny funny is the most handsome version of a person come on right everybody uh, duh. <laughs> okay so i will give you one shiny dollar the the gold rush is and the great dictator are both on the list oh good so i will give you one shiny dollar uh -huh. if you can tell me exactly the number <gasps> that the great dictator is oh i can't <laughs> um 54 good guess what is it but i keep my dollar number 37 oh and the gold rush is number 25 good good yeah. good okay yeah. i so, i am good with those yeah the movie that was like the, the other one that i really love talking about ad nauseum yeah. is animal house uh-huh just because it's it's just so funny it just it holds up so well it is just so funny Ooh, it's a great it's a great movie to talk i'll come back and talk about okay that. The, I, we're gonna do that because i disagree 100 percent. oh boy okay so, okay so we'll do it we'll do a part two okay okay well, i don't know if i'm coming back now <laughs> get out while i'm ahead we'll do a mini we'll do a little one okay just gonna send the wolf i love it i'm gonna yeah exactly yeah. oh i love it all right mark ellis You've been a treasure. You're the best. Per you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank for being Rufus here. for keeping his dreams mostly to himself. And keeping us very safe. <laughs> protecting us. That's a, there's a lot of people trying to get in here, but Rufus, he's the wolf. He's the wolf. He's the wolf. Thanks, buddy. All right.
Alrighty, friends, that's going to do it for me today. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already, pop on over to the Patreon. Um, there are all different kinds of levels of support, including the $5 a month level where you get access to uh, exclusive minis every week. And the one coming up this week, Mark and I dive in a little bit deeper to the history of the comedy store and how Robin Williams sort of fits into all of that. It's a really fun conversation uh, that I loved having, and I think you'll like it too. Or if you want to support the show in a different way, um, tell your friends about it. Share the show. Um, encourage other people like yourself to give it a try. And if you haven't already, please uh, rate and review the podcast and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Thanks so much for listening, guys. It's been great to be back, and I will see you on Patreon on Thursday. Bye. Bye.